For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. I'm Chief Meteorologist McCall Bride-Ags with my co-host, meteorologist Kirstie Zantini. As always, we are so excited for you to join us, whether you're listening or watching. We have both audio and video versions of our podcast now. But let's get right to our guest today because we're really excited to have her on. I've known this person for a couple of years now, and I can't wait to hear about um, what she has done for the weather service and where she is now and what she really has goals for the future. So let's head over to Kirstie so you can introduce our guest today. Yes, not to get our names confused, but our guest is Kristen Cassidy, and she is with the National Weather Service Office in Wilmington, Ohio. That's why McCall and I know her so well. We talk a lot about the partnership that broadcast meteorologists have with the Weather Service Department and offices across the country, and uh, Kristen is a huge resource to us here in Dayton, Ohio. And so we want to say hi, Kristen. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, McCall and Kirsty, for inviting me uh, to be a part of this podcast today. I can't believe we've waited so long, Kirsty. I know, which is crazy because Kristen, we've, you know, seen you many times. We've talked to you many times during weather chat and severe weather instances. And, you know, it's a shame it took us this long to get you on the podcast. Hey, well, I'm I'm happy to be here. And and again, thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, not only talk about uh, what the weather service is doing, but also some of the exciting upcoming changes we have in our, in our products and services. That's wonderful. Well, let's start off with a little bit about you, Kristen. How did you get to the National Weather Service? McCall and I talk with our guests a lot about the different paths people take to becoming mm-hmm. meteorologists and maybe when the weather bug first bit you. So what, what's your story? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually uh, grew up down in the Cincinnati area, and um, I was always one of those kids that uh, love to go outside and look at clouds. Um, particularly, I love snow. You know, what what kid doesn't love snow? They want to they want a snow day, right? But uh, right. I I I just you know I'd go outside and and just sit in the snow. You know, pull up a pull up a foldable chair and just and and just watch it. I I was always so fascinated uh, with the weather, and um, it was kind of always something that I knew I wanted to do, and. I really never wanted to do anything else. And so that's kind of a blessing because I know a lot of people kind of, you know, they spend a number of years trying to figure out what, what it is that they want to do. Um, I was really never in that case. Uh, so I uh, got my uh, bachelor's of science in meteorology from St. Louis University. I knew I wanted a little bit smaller program. There are, of course, a number of local programs which are very, very good programs. Um, but I was looking for something a little bit smaller. So uh, St. Louis University, their, their program is, is very small. In fact, uh, there were only four other meteorology majors that graduated with me wow. in my class. So yeah, it was, it was kind of fun because each of the, the courses was uh, more of a discussion opposed to uh, you know, a traditional lecture. Um, and then I went uh, out and got my master's uh, in meteorology from University of Oklahoma. And of course, that's uh, that's one of the more well-known 
meteorology schools just because of the amount of research that goes on out there. There are great partnerships, not only between the education sector, but uh, the government sector as well and the private sector. Um, it really is a, a fantastic operation they have down there. We're all kind of three sectors of weather come together to, uh, to protect lives and property. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's what everyone's kind of aiming for. That's, that's awesome. Wonderful. I mean, first of all, I love women in science. So, yeah. you know, kudos to you and oh, thank you. that amazing path and to show all the little girls and, you know, maybe teenage girls that are looking to take a path to say, you can do it mm -hmm. too. It's not just a man's job. And, and that points to yes. what you said about in, in college that, you know, there were only a few women, you know, opposed to all the men. And I had the same experience when I went and got my bachelor's mm -hmm. degree um, there were just three of us in the class and the rest were all men. So it, it's nice to know that, um, there's more of us out there and hopefully we'll get that balance a little bit more as we move forward. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, I think we're already starting to see it. Um, you know, we do a number of, uh, outreach and collaborative, uh, uh things with, uh, different local programs. And, uh, you certainly see, uh, that, that, uh, um, you know, equality is, is uh, evolving in a lot of the programs. You're starting to see many more uh, women, which is, which is great because, um, again, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, we want to be able to prove that, hey, we can, we can do it, uh, you know, just the same as anyone else. And so uh, it's really important for us to stress, uh, you know, women in STEM, it's, it's great to see. So how did you get then with the National Weather Service after you finished um, your master's? I know that there's like levels, right? In terms of what office you're placed in and then you kind of, so why don't, for people that maybe don't understand how the National Weather Service works, uh, why don't you explain a little bit if you are just starting off in the weather service, what's your title and like, how does it go and how do you even get a job? Yes, absolutely. Um, so for those of you who may not be aware, um, most uh, federal jobs are posted through a website called USA Jobs, and uh, that, that pertains particularly, of course, to National Weather Service and NOAA positions uh, as well. And so you kind of, you go on to usajobs.gov, you build uh, your profile, upload your resume, and essentially, you know, I, I kept checking the website to see if there were uh, job postings, job openings. I had some great guidance from uh, several meteorologists who were already in the weather service. So um, I kind of knew what to look for and uh, they gave me some guidance along the way for the process. Um, so when a job will come out, oftentimes there are only certain offices that will actually have an entry level vacancy. And um, so you essentially apply for the job and then you can, through the course of the application package, indicate what office you would prefer um, and you can kind of rank your offices in preference. Now, it doesn't always happen that you get your number one office. In fact, I would say that that's pretty rare. Um, yeah. I was fortunate enough to get my number one office. Uh, you know, I wanted to work for my hometown office uh, in Wilmington, Ohio, you know, of course, serving the Miami Valley area, the Cincinnati Tri-State, and then also up into Columbus. Um, so I was very fortunate. I, I'm kind of one of the few that actually um, got to where I wanted to be uh, at the entry level position. And, mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, um, you have the opportunity once you're in that entry level position to kind of move up once you gain years of experience. 
Um, the first year is a lot of training, um, particularly yeah. with issuing warnings, as that is kind of, um, you know, the, the number one thing that we do, uh, particularly convective warnings. Uh -huh. So there, there, there's a training program that's, uh, you know, hundreds of hours long, and it culminates in a uh, training out in Oklahoma where they actually put you through simulations and um, you issue warnings in this simulated environment and they kind of throw everything at oh you. My. See, that's see crazy. What you're able to do. Yeah. That seems rather intense. I don't, I didn't know that part about your job, which I don't know. Kirsty and I have test anxiety. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to go through something like that. Once school's over, I just uh, put that in the past. Um, speaking about, uh, warnings, I think that kind of pivots to one of the big questions that Kirsty and I had recently, there has been a change to the severe warnings. And I wanted to know if you could explain that a little bit better for our listeners and watchers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the weather service just implemented something called impact-based severe thunderstorm warnings. Um, that's always, that's, that's been, um, implemented for tornado warnings for uh, several years now, but um, essentially it allows us to assign a uh, kind of a threat category for severe thunderstorm warnings. And um, much like you get notifications on your phone for a tornado warning or uh, flash flood warnings, now you will get notifications on your phone through wireless emergency alerts or WIA for severe thunderstorm warnings, which we, we assign a destructive uh, category to it. Um, there, there are several reasons behind this. Um, number one, um, we recognize that severe thunderstorms, particularly those producing at least 80 mile per hour winds or baseball sized hail, um, they represent a significantly higher uh, threat to the public than even the base warning, which would be 58 miles per hour or quarter-sized hail. Um, a little bit of background on that. Um, during the derecho of 2012, yeah. uh, that hit central Ohio, uh, parts of the Miami Valley, west central Ohio, with 80, 90, 100 mile per hour winds, uh, we really didn't have a way to message and communicate to the public that this was an extra level of danger for a severe yeah. thunderstorm. Um, but now we have that capability and we have the ability to activate phones, which is very important because we understand that a lot of people do carry their phones with them and may not be necessarily attached to a radio or a TV or some sort of other source. But now we can get that information directly to those who would be most impacted. Now, I, go ahead, Christy. Oh, real quick, actually. So personal story. My older sister was hiking with her two little kids up in Cleveland. And I think it was probably the first time Cleveland had issued the destructive um, mm -hmm. thunderstorm warning. And she got that alert and ran to their car and was, was able to get um, safely in their car. And then uh, they were able to safely avoid that line because it was a very uh, intense, severe thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. um, it was a strong line of storms that went through the Cleveland area. Right. And yeah, that just recently happened. And I, and she was like distraught. She was texted me like, what is this warning? And I was like, actually, and it did, it used the EAS to alert her, not, you know, she didn't have a weather app or anything. It right. used that emergency alert system, which again is key because it doesn't have to just be a tornado that, you know, 80 mile per hour winds that would 
would be just as strong. So, um, yeah, so there was some success there in my family. <laughs> and I would, um, that kind of is the next question that I was going to ask. And you sort of answered it, Kirsty, in your story there is for some clarification, this new change in the warning is not just on the local level, but nationally. So even if you live outside of the Miami Valley and you were to go somewhere else, that um, type of warning will still be issued. Yes, yeah, that's that's correct. This is a na uh, national uh, change that has been implemented, and and Kirsty, your story um, that that's exactly why this change was implemented because uh, some people may not be may not have an app that sends them severe thunderstorm warnings, uh, you know, that would alert them. Um, but this will because we recognize the eighty mile per hour winds. That's that. Those are the kind of winds that you would expect in a in a potentially lower end tornado. Um, and, and so we want to make sure that when with 80 mile per hour winds, the damage potential is, is exponentially higher than would be the case for the base 58 mile per hour wind uh, warning. So this is a national thing. Uh, we have not issued at Wilmington a, uh, a destructive tag yet. We hope that that's far. In the <laughs> yeah. We can crossed. take a break for a few yeah. more years. <laughs> Um, but you know, we, we know sooner or later that that's, that's going to be needed. And this is just a way for us to alert those and, and get that information in the hands of those that need it the most. Now, as we are transitioning from severe weather to winter season and still on the same topic of impact based changes to warnings and watches, something that was a change a couple of years ago that I don't think has been used perhaps in our viewing area, Kirsty, is the snow squall warning. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that in case that's something that might get issued this winter season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so snow squall warnings, um, we have issued a couple uh, throughout the past several years. Um, I don't know specifically whether they've been in the Miami Valley area or not, um, but uh, research has shown that the greatest number of injuries and fatalities um, oftentimes are not during the, the bigger winter storms where say you're expecting five to eight inches of snow because um, you know people generally will avoid travel or they're altering their plans so they're not out on the road. Um, the best way to think of a snow squall is essentially a thunderstorm with snow. Uh, it may not have thunder, it could have thunder, um, but we want to try to uh, avoid the, the large pileups that oftentimes result from snow squalls. So we have started issuing snow squall warnings to alert drivers of uh, whiteout conditions, uh, essentially momentary blizzard conditions. You can go from nothing, uh, it looks perfectly fine, to essentially not being able to see 100 feet in front of you. And of course, if you're driving on a highway, especially in an interstate, you're going 60 miles per hour and all of a sudden you can't see 100 feet in front of you, uh, that's obviously a big concern. So the snow squall warnings will activate um, the wireless emergency alerts on your phone as well. And um, hopefully, um, and the other thing too, is they will actually activate um, ODOT, select ODOT electronics. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, but of course, uh, those signs are mainly on the interstates and, but the uh, activation of WIA will be no matter where you are. Now, when it comes to issuing warnings, when you're talking about severe weather, you use radar. Obviously, you can see if there's a hook developing or you can see the intensity of winds. Um, that helps you to issue the severe products. I imagine the snow squall warning is a little bit more difficult to kind of pick those out because when you look at a snow squall situation like we have in the Miami Valley, you have snow showers all over. 
how do you determine which one is going to get that uh, warning? Is it a lot more based on visual reports or maybe you could explain more on that? Sure. Well, it's it's a combination of, of the radar presentation as well as we're constantly monitoring uh, webcams. Yeah. Uh, ODOT has a variety of webcams that we can monitor. And um, of course, uh, you know, reports that come in uh, from, from our spotters. Uh, the other neat thing is we can also monitor road temperature conditions because that plays a big, a big role too. Um, sometimes you can have snow showers that resemble a snow squall, um, but if your road temperatures are well above freezing, uh, then we would probably not issue a snow squall warning. Um, but for example, if your road temperatures are right around freezing, uh, right. That, that's a big difference. So we kind of take all of that information into account when we're issuing the warning. So as you mentioned, McCall, it's not just the, the radar presentation. It's kind of a combination of that with webcams and road temperatures uh, to decide when one would be needed to be issued. So this is, uh, you kind of just brought this up when you said spotters, which again, I typically just associate the spotter network for severe weather. Um, mm -hmm. Is that... Is that something that's new with the snow squalls or have you guys, have you utilized your spotter network in the winter time in the past? And I just probably never really realized that. Uh, well, uh, some of our most recent training that we've done uh, with our spotters uh, has included a little bit of information about snow squalls. Okay. Um, because of course there is, there is a, a technical definition. Um, you know, you need the wind, you need the drop in visibility. Um, and right. uh, you need kind of a rapid accumulation of snow, even if it is just a half an inch, if that half an inch falls in, in five minutes, that's going to be an issue. Um, so it wasn't part of the training several years ago for our spotters, which we typically will do late winter into early spring. That's typically when we have our spotter uh, training uh, courses, and those will probably start to be announced here uh, as we head into uh, the uh, early parts of winter in terms of our schedule for next year. Um, but we try to rely on our spotters, not only during the summer, but then the winter as well, and also give us uh, snow reports, you know, for example, those five to eight inch storms that we sometimes get. Um, we like to hear from our spotters and like to get their official reports as well after the snow has come to an end. Our trained spotters are fantastic here. Yeah. You guys do a great <laughs> training um, program. I'm I don't think that you necessarily were able to do it to the extent that you have in the past because of the pandemic, but maybe yeah, you can tell our listeners online. and watchers about when you typically hold these events and what does that mean that you could be, you know, 12 years a old or even 55 and be a spotter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's a great point, McCall. Um, we, we kind of had to adjust our, our typical spotter program uh, the past couple of years uh, it used to be where we would travel to many of the counties and have an in-person course, um, but we've kind of uh, pivoted to a little bit more of a virtual platform. In the past couple of years, we've uh, conducted virtual spotter training courses, and we've had hundreds of people attend these, all ages, like you, like you said, uh, you know, kids, adults, um, those just looking for a refresher. Maybe they took an in-person course mm -hmm. several years ago. Uh, these courses are typically about two hours in length, and they run from uh, generally late winter. I'd say we start in February, and then it runs typically through about early April. Um, we haven't yet determined this year whether we will be able to resume in-person courses, 
Um, but this is a way for the public to help the National Weather Service because we rely on these trained storm spotters. We, we kind of give them information for identifying what the difference is between a wall cloud and a shelf cloud because of course those are things in severe weather that are very important for us at the Weather Service to get a sense of what's actually happening out there. Yeah. Um, you know, our office is just in Wilmington, so, so we kind of have uh, an army of spotters uh, throughout the area that are kind of our eyes on the sky uh, during these uh, severe weather events. I would also say, even if you're not a trained spotter and say you take a picture of a cloud that might look interesting or threatening, there is a way to get you that photo. There's an email, correct? Absolutely. Um, we, we have a, a spotter email. Um, you can send it to our, uh, our office email as well, which is uh, we call it our webmaster account, but also uh, on Facebook or Twitter. We're constantly looking for pictures and reports on our social media platform. Uh, McCall, you're so great at, at forwarding us uh, some of the, the pictures and photos that are forwarded to you. Um, so that's really where, the, you know, a lot of our partnership comes in as well, um, because we want to know if there's damage somewhere. We want to know if there's a funnel cloud somewhere. I, I know a couple of days ago, McCall, you had sent us some photos that we had not previously seen of yeah. some funnel clouds. Yes. They look pretty scary, too, I, I think, to the average person that doesn't know what they are. And Kristen, you, I've been told by your coworkers, you're like the social media guru on the team, if I'm correct. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I try to um, develop new, new and better ways for us to communicate to the public because at the end of the day, um, we can issue warnings, uh, we can issue the best forecast, the best warnings, but right. if the public is not receiving or interpreting the message in the correct manner, um, then our mission kind of falls apart a little bit. And so uh, we found that social media is a great platform to be able to kind of dissect a, a more complicated forecast and, and really tell the, the public, our social media audiences, what to expect. And uh, so we, we, as, as a, we have a social media team at our office, we try to develop new and, and better ways to communicate to the public and get them to take action when it is needed to help protect themselves. Kristen, because you're kind of talking about, uh, you know, what your office is doing during severe weather, obviously mm -hmm. uh, we have a plan, McCall and I do, and, and Dante, the rest of our team, when we're under severe thunderstorm warnings, we cut in uh, for tornado warnings, we go full coverage, um, sure. you know, and we have a team mm -hmm. that if we are, have multiple meteorologists there, like McCall will be on the weather wall and Dante may be driving the radar for her. Yep. I know that you guys break down your tasks as well during severe weather. So for somebody that might not know the workings, you are the ones that issue severe thunders, all warnings. We cannot do that as broadcast meteorologists. We just relay that message. Um, so what is going on during severe thunderstorm? We'll just say a severe thunderstorm warning and maybe a severe storm that could produce a tornado. Mm -hmm. You know, how is your team broken up? What are you guys doing? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Kirsty. Um, so, uh, you know, ahead of a severe weather event, um, we the, the shift supervisor will typically um, assign duties. Uh, and, and your duties are going to be, you know, a primary radar operator. And that's someone who is strictly interrogating radar data. They're not answering phones. Um, they're, they're not doing social media. They really are just using the training that I kind of briefly mentioned and just looking at radar data, just looking 
at you know not only reflectivity and velocity, but things like correlation coefficient and some of the other derived products to figure out what a storm is going to be doing and try to get that warning out with as much possible time. Um, if the coverage is great enough or the intensity of the storms is great enough, uh, we actually could have two or three radar operators and that is again their sole job. We have someone then that is going to be dedicated to NWS chat uh, as well as social media and making sure that our messaging is getting out to the public. We will also have uh, a, a dedicated mesoanalyst, someone who's analyzing observations, the changes in the environment, um, because that's really, really so important. Uh, you can't really figure out what a storm's going to do unless you can uh, correctly identify what type of environment it's working with. Um, so that's, that information is relayed directly to the radar operators. And then, of course, we have someone who's, you know, we usually have two or three people answering phones, getting those reports from our spotters, um, and then maintaining our, our uh, forecast because, of course, we issue aviation forecasts and a variety of other things. And we could also have a radar operator, or excuse me, a hydro operator, someone who would be dedicated solely to um, issuing flood products. Uh, because you're looking at completely different data to figure out whether, you know, a, a flash flood warning would be needed yeah. opposed to a tornado warning. So if you are um, not local to the Miami Valley, in 2019, we had a tornado outbreak. And I know, Kristen, you were working that night. I know that mm -hmm. you were not um, assigned initially to be someone issuing warnings. But as things escalated, your job changed. Briefly, can you tell us about your experience of that night and how it all transitioned and transpired? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I came in that evening, I was assigned to social media and uh, kind of, uh, you know, to answer phones and, and kind of our messaging specialist, so to speak. Um, but McCall, as you know, the coverage of storms and the severity of storms uh, ended up expanding so quickly um, that we initially had two radar operators and that actually turned into five people at one point that evening issuing tornado warnings um, because not, not only the intensity of the storms, but also the coverage. Uh, for those right. of you who may not remember in central Ohio that night, we actually had rotating storms in central Ohio that didn't produce tornadoes, mm -hmm. um, thankfully. Um, so those are, you know, those storms still needed to be watched. And so we kind of sectorized the, you know, uh, one of us had uh, the Miami Valley, another had West Central Ohio, and and um, for those of you who haven't seen our operations area, it's very open so that we can communicate very quickly and very openly with each other to make sure that we all know what we're in charge of, what our assigned duty is, and make sure that nothing is missed. Wow. Now, and after the storm, by the way. Yeah, bravo. Nothing I mean, was. You guys were amazing. Your you lead gave, time oh, it thank was, you. Yeah, it was fantastic. Kirsty and I talked about that for weeks. We still, the lead time <laughs> that you do. gave people. Um, we only have a few minutes left here, but I just would like you to briefly talk about after the storm, you guys are the ones that are doing the survey and you're going to, you know, come and tell us the rating and the path length and the width. Mm -hmm. What is the organization and preparation to send people out and things like that? Absolutely. Um, so one of the first things we will do is we'll get in contact with the county emergency management um, because a lot of the reports we know are going to be uh, shared with them. And uh, so we will generally coordinate a time with emergency management personnel from the counties impacted to come out and survey. And what that typically entails is 
uh, a team of two meteorologists from our office uh, going out to actually document. That means take photos. Uh, that means determining, okay, where did the tornado actually first touch down? Where did it lift? Uh, what is the, the width of the path? Um, and of course, a lot of that too, um, we look at radar data ahead of time to kind of get a general sense of where it may have first touched down. Um, as we always say, and we say this to our spotters, radar data is a tool. It doesn't tell us 100% what is happening or what is not happening. So that's why going out into the field, taking a look at the damage, talking with those impacted by the storms, that's why it's so important. And so typically that will be the process. We'll get in contact with emergency management. We'll kind of set up a plan for where we're gonna start the survey, where we're gonna end. And then we come back to, to our office, take a look at all the photos, take a look at the damage. And a lot of two of what we're trying to determine is how strong the winds were within a tornado. And of course that has a lot to do with construction quality and uh, you know a variety of other things, uh, particularly when you're dealing with the weaker tornadoes. You know, had it been really soggy and the ground and the you know the trees just toppled because uh, it was um, a soggy ground. So those are all things that we take into consideration when we determine the maximum wind speed, which will ultimately determine the rating that the tornado will be assigned. That's amazing, Kirsty. Any final questions for you uh, before we wrap up? Uh, honestly, Kristen, we got through so much. I, I think a lot of people like to get that inside look at what you guys are all doing at the weather service office, because most people just get the warning and they don't really mm -hmm. maybe know all that work that goes into, you know, releasing those warnings, all the training that goes into you, uh, being able to issue it. So thanks so much for sharing with us. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your podcast today. And again, uh, for any listeners or, or viewers out there, um, you know, feel free to uh, to follow any of our social media accounts and, and always feel free to give us a call too. If you have a, a report of damage that you'd like to make sure it gets in our hands, uh, feel free to give us a call. Um, that's, we're, that's why we're there. We're 24 uh, seven operations. So we're, we're there to serve the public. And I would uh, echo that because um, I've met a lot of you at the weather service. You're all very kind people. And um, I know the more information that you have, the better you can do your job. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be a couple of weeks later and someone says, I had this damage. Well, it's, right. it's already been a couple of weeks and you may not be able to assess the way you would have liked to had it been the day right. after an event. So feel free to reach out. Do you happen to know the Twitter handle or the Facebook handle that people can look for? Yes, uh, so our Twitter handle is NWS as in National Weather Service and then the letters I-L-N. Um, the, the little backstory to that is there's actually another Wilmington office, right? North Carolina. <laughs> so we had to get creative with our, with our Twitter handle. Um, but Facebook is just Facebook forward slash NWS Wilmington OH. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. We'll probably Perfect. have you on sometime in the future. Maybe if there's uh, some big storm that comes through, we'll need your analysis and everything that happened in experience. Um, as always, thank you for joining us on Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. You can download, subscribe, and listen to our podcast on your phone, whether it's an Apple or an Android, just use the podcast app. You can also watch this, our video version, I'll post on our YouTube account. Just look for Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. Also, if you download the WHIO app, if you have a Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, we will also have this video version there as well as on WHIO.com. That's a mouthful, but we are so happy that you came to hang out with us 
today and we'll see you next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.